Turn to uh, Matthew 16. We'll be looking at verse 21 today. However, we're going to take a minute to get there, a little bit of review. There were some folks missing last week. Just want to make sure everybody's sort of heard it. We've been going through what is discipleship. This week we're dealing with its significance, but uh, sort of why are we on this topic? There's been recent discussions among us, which are always good. It definitely needs clarification as you look out there in, the, in Christendom. There's a number of things confused in Christendom, and this is one of them. Not everything is confused, but this one is. And it has great significance, which is what we're continuing to look at this morning. Our approach to this topic, <clears throat> the definition, a brief definition, we addressed that. Terminology, we looked at that some last week. Significance, that's where we are this week. And we'll be dealing with what are the requirements, or you might say the cost of discipleship. What are the ingredients or <clears throat> what uh, goes in, what are the characteristics of discipleship. And then we'll be looking at some of the current popular perspectives. So definition, looked at that, it was a brief one. A disciple, uh, not discipleship, but a disciple is a personal follower of Jesus. And <clears throat> this definition is drawn from Biblical material, by the way, not a Greek lexicon. You can go into a Greek lexicon, you can look up disciple, but it's not going to really give you a New Testament version of things. It gives you a, you know, a general <coughs> definition of discipleship, but discipleship is discipleship of Jesus. It's unique. There's no other person like Jesus. I, I always <coughs> am discouraged when scholars, even scholars I appreciate, say that the Gospels, we're trying to find out what is, you know, the Gospel, it has its own... Uh, sort of type or character of literature. What is its genre of literature? And they, some try to fit it into biography, some trying to fit into this. They try to find New Testament or New Testament era patterns and try to fit the Gospels into it. And I'm like, you can't do that. <clears throat> the Gospels are Gospels. There is no other genre for the Gospels other than Gospel. It's about a unique human being, one who is God and man, uh, it's about unique acts in history, the redemption of the human race. I mean, you can't fit these into biography or into history or into some of these other genre patterns of literature. It's its own pattern. And so it is with a disciple and discipleship. I mean, there's some background of what disciple means and, and things like that. It had common usage in, in that era, uh, period of time. But this is unique. You're not just a disciple of someone who has some good ideas. You're a disciple of the Son of God. It's unique. So it has its own unique and uh, personalized definition. So a disciple is a personal follower of Jesus. And we've been through a few of the passages where Jesus said, follow me, and they followed him. And that's the point of discipleship. It's that, as it were, basic or simple a disciple, being a disciple, discipleship actually is simple in the end, which is not easy. Um, a disciple is a follower of Jesus and his teachings. This is a part of it. And uh, we go to Matthew 28. I'm trying to stick in Matthew, by the way, for all of this. Um, <clears throat> teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's the mission of the church. That's the core mission. It's the only mission. Uh, this is what the church is to be focused on. This is why we are primarily a teaching group. 
that is our mission. We focus on teaching. We spend money on worship to worship the Lord. So we'll do everything we have to have to have the best equipment we can have reasonably. And then we're going to spend money on things that are for teaching because that's what we're supposed to be doing, um, teaching. <clears throat> and so if we're to be teaching, the church is to be teaching, then disciples are to be learning, you know. Um, so that's part of discipleship. Especially as presented in the Gospels and Acts. And again, a reminder that the term disciple, discipleship doesn't occur in the New Testament, but disciple occurs in 252 verses, 268 times, but only in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, the Gospels and Acts. doesn't occur in the epistles. And so I was thinking about that this morning. Uh, you know, I, as a Christian, got saved in Pentecostalism, but started encountering Reformed theology and Finally, I, I switched, got out of the craziness of Pentecostalism I was in, kept some of the good things about it, and there are some good things. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> but I went into Reformed theology, but Reformed theology, and basically theology in general, focuses on really the epistles, because that's where the theology is really articulated, isn't it? That's where things are clarified. <clears throat> and so we kind of hang there a lot. You don't really go to Jesus really often, but to illustrate, if you think about it. You don't go there very much for core doctrinal statement. There's always going to those clear, succinct statements of the Apostle Paul or Peter. And so theology in general is usually about soteriology. Soter in the Greek means saved. So it's about being saved. Um, And that's usually the focus. And so we've come to use the terminology of becoming a Christian by being saved and then you live the Christian life. Because that's the terminology of the epistles. And I think that's one of the reasons why discipleship is a bit confused out there because we don't tend to incorporate the term disciple into systematic theology because it's not in the epistles. So you don't encounter it a lot. And it's just kind of interesting to see that how our minds and our thinking can be shifted by this this focus on terminology that does not usually or generally include disciples. So disciple, discipleship, is often sort of vague to people, and they're kind of going, yeah, I know it's kind of there, but maybe that's what you do, what? I get saved, and, and, I, and I, you know, <clears throat> I can read Paul, and he says, put this away, put that away, put this on, put that on. I mean, those are things that are easy to see and hard to follow, but easy to see, but we go, you know, this, this discipleship, what is it? It's just kind of vague. And I think it's because of the way terminology is used just in uh, Christian theology in general. So what is a disciple? One who actively follows Jesus has a personal attachment to him. We are adherents of Jesus. That's discipleship. We just don't name his name to go, yeah, I'm a Christian. We are personally attached to him. We know him. We love him. We serve him. There's submissive learning and there's comprehensive obedience. These are the core ingredients of being a disciple and therefore probably discipleship. And that's a brief definition. Then there's terminology. And you go, Steve, what's the difference? Well, there's a little bit of a difference because we have to discuss it. Uh, because of its sort of <clears throat> obliqueness, it's hard to see, and uh, its vagueness. So we just want to talk about it a little more. So last week we went to Grandma's kitchen. All right. And we made Grandpa some cookies. We're baking cookies in Grandma's kitchen. And in Grandma's kitchen, because she's from the 50s or the 60s, and she still has these canisters. We have the ingredients of cookies, the essential ingredients, because a good cookie is the right blend of essential ingredients. There's flour, sugar, or salt, and they become cookies through Grandma's magic cookie making. 
<clears throat> now, when we are looking at cookies, we have labels on these canisters, these jars. And what we see is the labels are important. And so what happens if you're, you know, baking cookies, you're not paying attention, and you get too much sugar, and you go, okay, I'm going to put it back, and you put it back in the salt jar. Or you have too much salt, and you go, okay, I'm going to put some back, but you're not paying attention, you put it back in the sugar jar. Now you've confused things. There's uncertainty about what's in those jars. And you can get undesirable results if you're not clear, if the jars aren't maintained and the labels don't make sense. You can change labels. Someone switches the labels, or you, you accidentally... When you're filling, filling them back up, you're filling them up wrong. And so the labels do not reflect what's in the jars. You can get confusion. You can get some really bad cookies uh, from those kinds of results. And so we learned from Grandma's Kitchen that labels of ingredients are important. We have to pay attention to labels. They have to accurately re- represent what's in the, the jars, the ingredient jars. And they are essential to a good outcome of making cookies. And so it is in Christian truth. In Christian truth, it's like baking cookies. Christian doctrine has basic ingredients, some core categories of truth. And if we start putting them in jars, as it were, in, in, in dealing with them in chapters in a book or in our own particular thinking, then we have to realize that labels matter. We have to pay attention to the labels of Christian doctrine. The Christian doctrine labels must, must accurately represent what they're talking about. Or at least what's in your chapter. If you say this is a chapter on justification, better have justification in it. It's essential to clarity. It's essential to stability. One of the things I had to learn in, in Pentecostalism, there's just a lot of emotional emphasis. If you've ever been in Pentecostalism, you, you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> and I guess that's fine for some people, but there's a lot of emotional emphasis, and there's a tendency to downplay doctrine. There's even... Statements like, you know, you, got, you can't live out of, out of the flesh or the soul and doctrine. You've got to live out of the Spirit and being connected with the Holy Spirit, things like that. It's like an either-or. Emotionalism is contrasted with having clarity in the Bible. And because clarity in the Bible is downplayed, it's total confusion in Christianity, in that realm of Christianity. So clarity and stability is vital to have, you know, your, your Christian doctrine clear and sober. And it's vital for unity. If someone thinks sanctification means one thing and another person thinks, thinks, thinks sanctification means another, you're not going to have unity. And there are whole, we all know, they're just the doctrine of sanctification. I mean, you've got versions of sanctification out there where there's whole movements, whole denominations in deeper life and things like that. And you try to talk to the folks, because I, I talked to a, a good friend of mine and he goes to a particular church in Atlanta, and he's just telling me about what's going on all the time. It's just awful. And, uh, because they're just not clear on what these labels mean and what they should be saying. You can't confuse things. One of the hardest things in the Christian life is to get straight. How am I made right with God? Chris mentioned it again this morning. That was a really good statement. That, you know, we, we, don't, we don't fast to, to get righteous with God. <clears throat> We're not going to confuse sanctification with justification, or the Christian life with justification. Um, but, when, but when you're a young Christian, you're usually confused about it. And also, even as an old Christian, you can tend to wake up and say, man, I've had a really bad week. I've really been awful to the wife. You know, I've been just focused on other things other than the Lord. I must not be saved. You know? God won't accept me. And you start confusing justification and sanctification. And so that's important. It's important to keep the labels straight and not to switch the labels. These labels have been switched in history. 
deeper life, switches labels, things like that. <clears throat> it only produces uncertainty and confusion. So when it comes to the labels of Christian truth, Christian doctrine, if you will, we have to have proper ingredients with proper labels. The terminology needs to be biblical or at least clearly reflect biblical categories. It's essential for clarity, accuracy, and unity. Now, as we look at labels, which is the point of this little section, terminology, justification and sanctification, those are labels that just come right out of the Bible. It's terminology directly out of Scripture. And so, easy to stick those labels. It's sometimes hard to keep the stuff in the jar correct. <clears throat> Don't go mixing and matching. Only put what's in the justification jar things for justification. <clears throat> but still, the labels are not hard to come up with. They're, they're readily at hand in Scripture. But when it comes to Trinity and discipleship, well, these are labels that are not readily at hand. They don't derive from Scripture. They must be composed. And they usually, labels like this usually emerge from discussion and experience in the history of the church. That's how Trinity has come into being. But they have to re- represent biblical material. And when you think of the, the Trinity, again, uh, that's what's been in Sunday school, the Trinity. Love the doctrine. It has to have biblical components. The term is non-biblical or extra-biblical. Now, I didn't say unbiblical. The term doesn't give you errors about, you know, the, what's, what's the doctrines about. That depends on what you stick in the jar, you know. But the, the term itself isn't unbiblical. But we have to remember it's extra-biblical. It doesn't derive from Scripture itself. It's something we've composed. But it is something that's been well-defined in the history of the church, and remember that. It's been around for 1,500 years. It's been beaten up. It's, it's, it's earned its, its, its terminology. It's earned its name. It's earned its label. There's consensus on what it means. Now, not everybody is honest about it. I think there's a fellow, T.D. Jakes. I uh, had listened to some of his material, one of my... Uh, Children gave me books by this fellow when they were dabbling in it. <clears throat> and actually, some of the things I had to say were pretty good. I'm like, oh, it's TD, huh, on Ephesians. And uh, so I got a whole set of TD Jakes, five books or five or six books on Ephesians. Uh, didn't have to pay for it either. Um, <clears throat> but TD Jakes is a modalist. TD Jakes does not believe in the Trinity. He says he does. Christianity Today did an interview with him in which he said everything he could to sound like he was Trinitarian, that he believed the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, did everything he could to say that. But he wouldn't really say it. And the interviewer in Christianity Today was just trying to show the world that T.D. Jake's own words, he's a modalist, and you can't pin him down to be in Trinitarian, even though he tries to say he is, because he wants to get people in the door and get that money. He knows that a modal, modalism isn't going to fly well with American Christianity, at least not 10, 15 years ago. And the interviewer did it, everything it could in Christianity today to pin him down. Couldn't do it. Everybody knows he's a modalist. He did everything to avoid that title. So... If people do that, there's nothing we can do about it. They're deceptors, they're deceivers, they're manipulators. But the doctrine of the Trinity is clear and well-known. Even T.D. Jakes knows it, even though he doesn't believe it. But he won't say he doesn't believe it. And so the doctrine of Trinity 
is well-earned, well-known, has a consensus, it's falsifiable. You know what that means in science. You can prove it to be true or false. And so you can prove the doctrine of the Trinity to be true or false. I believe it or I don't believe it. It's provable. It's not, you know, vague or ambiguous. Well, discipleship, which is the terminology we're concerned about, what is discipleship? It's a composed label. In that jar should be material about discipleship. The question is, what should be in the jar? What does discipleship mean? And we sort of see it's sort of vague and ill-defined. We can define disciple, that's pretty straightforward, but what about discipleship? If we're going to use this term, and I think it's a fine term, it's a handy term, but if we're going to use this term, what do we mean by it? And as challenges are, it's not in the Bible. It's not naturally derived. It's a sort of a participle. I'm trying to figure out the parts of speech. Part of speech that you would call it. It's kind of a verb, kind of a noun. Uh, so I'm going to call it a participle. Could be wrong, but... But it's not a natural derivative. We wouldn't say followership or learnership, but we do say discipleship. Remember, the word in the Bible is a noun. It's a verb only four times, and they all point to becoming the noun. Not the activity of being a disciple, but the activity of becoming a disciple, not what happens after. So it's quasi-biblical, must be externally defined, must gain consensus, and that's where it lacks in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity. Doctrinity has 1,500 years of consensus. Discipleship has yet to have consensus. It's used in many ways. There's no agreed-upon definition. There's some stabs at it. You can go on the Internet and find all kinds of things, but still it's just, you can tell it's just still sort of jello, in jello mo- <coughs> mode right now. But it must refer back to Scripture. So here's my definition, a working definition. One I'll submit to the world. I doubt they'll adopt it, but I'll at least try. Discipleship is personally following a verb, Jesus, as Messiah, Savior, and risen Lord. And I say that because these are the component parts in the scripture. We're to follow him according to his word and the dynamic of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is very much a part of things as we started to see last week. So when we looked at significance in last week, we looked at Matthew 11. Jesus had <clears throat> talked about the cities and villages that had not responded in faith. He had invested a lot in time and miracles and effort and ministry, and they just generally didn't believe. And so Jesus said, you know, Father, you've hidden these things. Jesus didn't get all discouraged. He says, Father, you've hidden these things from the wise and the, I keep thinking prudent, because that's what I've always read for 50 years, and have revealed them to infants, to babes. And so we start to see that discipleship is fundamentally based on sovereign grace. Human belief or unbelief, human acceptance or rejection, human choice is not the ultimate issue in salvation. It's not the bottom line. It's certainly part of it. You must choose to follow Jesus. You must believe on him. You must accept him, and that's a a biblical word, accepting Jesus, used in a lot of ways today. I'm not sure I agree with, but accepting Jesus. It's terminology in the scripture. But sovereign grace is behind that choice, behind that acceptance, behind that faith. And here, God bypasses the self-sufficient, the self-important, the self-focused, and the self-willed, the pride of proud people of this world, the self-determined, just what we would call the worldly folks of this world. God bypasses them. You've hidden these things from the wise and the worldly. 
prudent, the worldly, intelligent. God hangs with the meek. You've revealed them to babes. He hangs with the meek, the humble, the broken, the insignificant. So if that's you, if you're meek, humble, not to be proud of being meek and humble, but that's just who you are. God's usually made you that way. You're not that way by nature. God sometimes has to really bring you low to bring you to that place. If you're one of the broken, if you're one of the insignificant, then, man, this gospel's for you. God, the God who made heaven and earth, is willing to bow down the heavens and show you himself and show you his son. Some would say, well, this sovereign grace stuff, isn't this misrepresent God? You're making him harsh and et cetera, and all the objections to sovereign grace. Well, Jesus has none of those objections. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Yes, Father, for this is well-pleasing in your sight. Jesus does not have objections to sovereign grace. Now, a whole lot of theologians and Christians that follow them have objections to sovereign grace, but Jesus has none. He praises the Lord and blesses the Lord for it. Without sovereign grace, people think, well, sovereign grace will keep people from becoming Christians. But when we understand who people are, that human beings are just bound in sin, they are rock-hardened sinners. That's what we all were. And that we need mercy. We will not come to God. If God shows us and promises us everything, that's not going to change our hearts. Because we can't change our own hearts. Sovereign grace comes and changes the heart. Without sovereign grace, no one will be saved, no one can be saved, and no one will stay saved. Right? That's why when people really work out their Arminianism, the opposite of sovereign grace, and they believe in free will, the people that actually work it out all the way clearly will tell you you could lose your salvation. Those that go, well, that's too far, because they just don't like it, they'll make shore up some little doctrine of eternal security, but it has no foundations in their theology. God himself glories in his sovereign grace, and we should too. Jesus declares his messiahship and lordship. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, all things. This is what the Messiah is in the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. God's going to give everything to this Messiah. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. This is all Old Testament prophecy of the reign of Messiah and the kingdom of God that Jesus brought into human history. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And brothers and sisters, this is who disciples follow. We don't just follow just someone who's going to save us from our troublesome life. Jesus is Savior, but not as Lord. I mean, not possible. When Jesus is going to say, come unto me and learn of me, the next verse, he's saying this first. This is who I am. This is who you come to if you want to be a disciple. No one knows the Son except the Father, neither does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The knowledge of God is at the heart of discipleship. Discipleship isn't just doing things, it's living a life out of knowing the living God. It's the natural expression of being a child of God, of being born of God, of being a follower of the Son of God. The knowledge of God. 
in the debates about epistemology, which is about knowledge, how you can know, what you can know, how much you can know, all those things. They try to say that, well, the knowledge of God is analogical. That means you can only know God by analogy. That's not what this says. I mean, I appreciate the issues of apologetics and those who delve into it and everything. It's not very long before they lose me. I'm like, I'm just going to preach Jesus Christ. Apologetics is really for Christians to uh, sort of shore us up against the world's attacks. Uh, We don't go to the world with apologetics. We go to the world with the gospel. We proclaim Christ. We don't try to talk people into it. But anyway, in the world of apologetics that as Christians we embrace, they're going to say you can only know God through analogy because God is so infinite in this and that and the other. I'm like, that's all wonderful, but that's not true. Because who does the Son reveal to disciples? The Son reveals to his disciples the broken, the insignificant. He reveals to the disciples his own knowledge of his own Father. That's real. The second Corinthians, or first Corinthians chapter two puts it: the Spirit searches the deep things of God and reveals them to us. It's not analogical, it's real. Now, we're finite, so we can only hold a little bit of the knowledge of God. But the little bit that we hold is real. I can go down to the ocean, I can't grab the whole ocean, but I can get a cup of it. And that cup is real ocean water. It's not secondaries removed water. It's the real deal. I get my own cup. And the knowledge of God that we receive from Jesus Christ is the knowledge he himself has of God. And the knowledge of Jesus himself comes from the Father revealing the Son as he knows the Son. That's why if someone is a true believer, it's impossible to deny the deity of Jesus. Because becoming a Christian, becoming a disciple means you gain this knowledge that God has of his Son. And God will never deny the deity of his own Son. That's why it's heretical that you can't know God if that is your true conviction. Now, you may be theologically confused for a while. But in your heart of hearts, you know that this Jesus that you are a disciple of is the Son. And this is discipleship. This Jesus is the one who says, come to me and learn from me. And that is discipleship. So a human being... What a deal. There's a movie Gwen and I have watched, and there's a saying in the movie where an Indian and a, a white man exchange things, and the Indian points at the white man because he's got the white man's hat or something like that, and he says, good trade. You know? And I think I, we so Gwen and I will use it every now and then. Good trade. Well, here you get to trade in guilt and bondage. Learn from me. Take my yoke, give up your old one, take mine. Trade in your guilt, your bondage, your emptiness to know and love the God of the universe. Good trade. That's a good trade. Well, this morning we're going to look some at Matthew 16. I know it's been a long introduction, but 
just wanted to make sure that, that we had that clearly laid out. So let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and just ask as we uh, look at this passage in Matthew 16, Lord, the words of your Son, the one whom you've given all things into his hand, the one who now sits at your right hand, the one who right now rules the nations with a rod of iron, the one who right now opens and no man can shut and shuts and no man can open, the one who has the keys of death and of hates. the one who has life. Lord, we will hear these words this morning, that we will be sobered by sobering words. Lord, it's so easy, especially in America, to become complacent, to be caught up in the cares of this present life. Our life is supposedly simpler, but our life is so complicated. Who can figure out the next version of a smartphone? Lord, just pray that uh, we would just have in ourselves, each one of us individually, have hearts that are united to serve you, love you, and have our hope in the right place. Lord, speak to us this morning. Lord, Heavenly Father, reveal to us your Son, and Lord Jesus, reveal to us the Father. And show us more and more what it is to follow you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're in Matthew 16, verse 21, and from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is wrapping up his Galilean ministry. Now remember, Galilee's up in northern Israel. And up above Galilee are the non-Israelite territories, and there's Tyre and there's Sidon. And Jesus had just gone up there a chapter or two before. His northernmost ministry went up there. It looks like just, to, you know, he preaches and stuff. But the focus is on one woman, and Jesus basically goes up to her, and she's a Canaanite woman, and, and uh, she basically says, heal my son, and he said, I can't, you know, it's not right for me to give uh, the children's food to the dogs. I mean, think about that. You come to Jesus and say, Lord, save me. He goes, nah, can't give food to the dogs. Not doing it. And what did that make that woman do? Give up, walk away? What did she say to him? Lord, but even the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from the table. Jesus knew she had faith, but he was bringing it out, bringing it out to show principalities and powers, bringing it out to show her, bringing it out to glorify God. And he said, O woman, great is your faith. So as far as we know, that was the main reason he went all the way up to Tyrenside. I'm sure there's others that are saved, but that's the one that's recorded. So Jesus is winding up this Galilean ministry, this ministry in the north of Israel and beyond. And chapter 16 sort of is a turning point. And in that turning point, Jesus poses the questions in the verses before this. Who do people say that I am? They say some say this, some say that. And Jesus said, but what about you? And that's always where the question lands. We can dicker with theology or dicker with philosophy or dicker with opinions, but in the end, Jesus finally says, okay, great, all this discussion's great, but what about you? What is your personal knowledge? Not what is your intellectual banter, but what is your personal knowledge? What about you? And that's when 
Peter gave the clear answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, 17. And just like Matthew 11, Jesus wants to make sure that he understands that this is the result of sovereign grace. Blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Human intellect didn't reveal this to you. Human inquiry didn't reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out through some philosophical set of logical syllogisms. You, you just didn't. You've seen me raise the dead, but that didn't reveal it to you. You've seen me do all these things, but that didn't ultimately reveal it to you, all these miracles. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. Again, salvation is of the Lord. Human insight is not the ultimate basis of salvation. But from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem. He's now switching from the northern Galilee, and he's going to go down into the southern Palestine area, and he's going to go to Jerusalem. And he's going to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Notice, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. This isn't something that's avoidable. This wasn't a personal choice. This wasn't, well, I looked on VRBO and, you know, there's some spaces in Jerusalem pretty cheap. We can all go down there and take a break. He's got to go to Jerusalem. And when he goes there, he's going to experience the full brunt of what there's been a trickle of up in Galilee. Up in Galilee, you've seen the religious crowd opposing Jesus. And sometimes it will say that some of the priests or the scribes from Jerusalem were opposing him. So we've already seen that Jerusalem is hostile to Jesus. And he says, that's where I'm going. And I'm going to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and scribes. There's only one other place in the Gospel of Matthew where the three are brought together. The two are mentioned often. It'll be either be priests and scribes, elders and priests, elders and scribes. But here the three are all brought together. The whole crowd, the whole religious establishment, except for a few, are aligned against Jesus. He knows it. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. I mean, what would you do if you knew that you were going to be killed 60 days from now? You got 60 days and then you're going to be killed. Well, you start getting things in order, start doing this, doing that. Pretty sure you wouldn't go out and finish mowing the lawn. I'm pretty sure you'd go, well, someone else is going to have to take care of that. Pretty sure you'd focus on the things that really matter. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus, number one, he didn't have a lawn to mow. He has to go. He has to go for reasons. He's going to be killed. He's going to suffer. He's going to have to deal with all this opposition. But he's going to be raised up on the third day. Now you need to pay attention to that. 
we often do if we want to study the resurrection, but it's just we're so focused on he's going to go and be killed and these priests and the opposition and all the stuff we forget, but he's going to be raised up on the third day. Don't lose sight of this positive statement. Jesus is going because the scriptures have to be fulfilled. This is really interesting in Matthew 26, sort of the, just before the being taken by the Sanhedrin. It's really interesting how many times it says the scriptures have to be fulfilled. Matthew 26, verse 24. The Son of Man goes even as it is written of him. But woe unto him, the man through whom the Son of God is betrayed. He's going as it is written of him. Verse 28. And this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many unto remission of sins. But I say unto you, I shall not drink henceforth the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new in your Father's kingdom. Jesus is fulfilling a covenant, a covenant clearly outlined in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Verse 31. Then said Jesus unto them, All you shall be offended in me tonight, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Zechariah. Verse 54. How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? She said, I can bring legions and angels to come but the scripture has to be fulfilled. I must go to Jerusalem. In verse 56, but all this has come to pass that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So Jesus is clear that this is a thing he has to do. But what about the final outcome? He will be raised on the third day. We're going to look at these verses, but in verse 27, he says, I'm going to go up and be killed, but then there's something more beyond that, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. He's going to be raised the third day, and he's going to come back in glory. Or 17.9, and as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. He's going to be raised. 17.22, and while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, the Son of Man shall be delivered up unto the hands of men, and they shall kill him the third day, and he shall be raised. Don't lose sight of the positive. Peter lost sight of the positive. Peter lost sight of the scriptures. He probably didn't understand them. So it's basically he didn't lose sight. He just never had it. He had a traditional view of things. He had conceptions or rather misconceptions of how the Messiah would come into his glory and in his mind and in the, the Jewish mind Jesus would go to Jerusalem and somehow, some way, mountains are going to split in half And the Messiah is going to come to reign over the whole world, squash the Romans and everything else. That was their version. And Jesus says, no, I'm going up there and I'm going to be killed. And he was so focused on this radical shift that he missed, he didn't catch on to, he didn't embrace, and be raised up the third day. He missed the positive. 
Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I don't understand this third day stuff, but I understand the killed thing and the suffering thing, and this shall not happen to you. That's not my perspective of who you are or what the kingdom of God is about. You see, Peter still had a traditional and worldly perspective. Is that you? Some of you have a hard time for things here at New Covenant. You just do. And I just wonder how you think about it. And we keep reminding you, we keep telling you that we do things according to the Scripture. We don't care whether it is or isn't tradition. We're not anti-tradition. We're just tradition is irrelevant to us. If someone does things in a good way and we find out about it, shoot, we'll do it. Why not? But in the end, the Scriptures are our measure and the Scriptures are our guideline. The Scriptures are outlined. And if you keep bucking against what we do here, maybe you might be finding yourself like Peter. You're really bucking against your own traditional misconceptions. So put the issue where they belong. Because we're not going to change because the scriptures don't change. We might change our, I don't know, some outer decorative things. That's fine with me. I don't care about decorations. But I do care about foundations. I care about frameworks. I care about layouts. So my brothers and sisters, if you're struggling with some things here, and gosh, over the years, we've been, we've been going at this for 22, 23 years now. We've had no shortage of folks coming in and having struggles. Some change quickly. Some change the hard way. But they change, and that's good. Some change slowly, some change. But then there's those who don't change, and when they leave, they leave saying that we're, the problem's us. I'm like, where's the problem us? Now, sinners, sure. I mean, everybody gets married, and they think it's going to be flowers and everything else, and ends up being, well, this is who I married. This is what marriage is about. It's hard work. You're living with another people, another person. You see their flaws, you have to deal with their foibles. And so it is with New Covenant. When you come here, you're going to have to deal with flaws and foibles, yes, but if you have a problem with the plan, the floor plan, that's a different story. Here is Peter. He had a problem with the floor plan. Jesus, this can't be the floor plan. You can't go to Jerusalem. That's just not my concept of a Messiah. God forbid it. Never happen. He rebukes Jesus. Anybody here ever rebuked the Lord or tried to? I actually have tried. I'm going to promise you, not a good idea. Doesn't work. Some of you, that's what you're doing. You're like almost rebuking the Lord because you have misconceptions of his kingdom. But the worst thing about this isn't that he had misconceptions or that he even rebuked the Lord. Probably not a good idea, but, you know, the Lord puts up with a lot from us. We put up with a lot from our kids. The Lord puts up with a lot from us. 
But the thing that was the, the belt buckler, the thing that was the issue for Jesus is he was trying to turn Jesus from his global mission. Don't do this. Don't go to Jerusalem and die. Don't fulfill your mission. Now, apparently, Peter took him aside. He was talking to him somewhat privately, although what private means in in that setting, who knows. But the conversation was meant to be sort of personal. Peter's trying to sort of keep it separate. If you're going to rebuke the Lord, I suggest you do it privately, not publicly. By the way, that word rebuke is a very strong word. It's used when Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves. And it's used when Jesus rebukes demons. It's a very strong word. But Jesus turned and said unto him, Get me behind me, you confused person. Get behind me, traditionalist. Get behind me, misconceptionalist. See, was there another person that we read of previously in Matthew? Was there another individual... Another entity who tried to turn Jesus from his mission. Matthew 4. The temptation was what? Satan was trying to say, don't do your mission. Hey, you want to run the world? Great. Fall down and worship me and I'll give it to you. That's how you can do your mission. Satan was there to keep Jesus from doing anything but going to Jerusalem and dying because that was his ultimate mission. And so here, Peter, unwittingly, unsure and unintentionally, but foolishly, was being a mouthpiece for Satan. My brothers and sisters, be careful you don't do that here with your brothers and sisters. It can happen. Take your relationships here seriously. Take your privileges that you have here seriously. You just don't get to blurt out anything you want. You don't get to blurt out every opinion. You can do that at home with your husband or wife. They'll listen to you, or at least pretend that they are. But you don't do that with the brethren. It can have its effects. Little picking can turn into discord and division. Jesus said, I'm on my mission. Get out of my way. Get behind me. Do not stand in my way. And that's me and Chris. When people try to stand in our way, and they have, we could tell you stories of folks who have come through here and did everything they can to try to turn us from our mission. And we're like, no, not happening. And they went away mad, sad, whatever. But we're not going to do it. We're going to say what Jesus said. We're not going to let anybody deter us from our mission. Not going to happen. We can't. If we let someone come and deter us from our mission, then we all pay the price. So that's the thing about leadership. Leaders often think that, well, I'm up here now to do what I want. I'm like, no, you're up here to make decisions that are going to be good for everybody, not you. Not so you can stay in your leadership position. 
problem with the politicians in Washington. They all think that the politics exists for them. Get behind me. Stay out of my way. Get out of my way. You're a stumbling block to me. Stumbling block. You're walking down the road and sometimes, you know, we've had all this stuff all over our house being remodeled. And you're not used to something being there and you stumble on it. Don't put a stumbling block in front of your brethren because you have a strong opinion. Be careful. You have to be careful to stay on mission personally. That's why Chris and I talk about things here. Some of the practical things is why we talk about politics. That's why we downplay politics. So we're trying to tell you, stay on your personal mission. Your personal mission is not political. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have parameters for your mission. And putting hope in politics goes nowhere. I encounter this a lot. I encounter this a lot everywhere. I've encountered it here. I've encountered it here in this heart. If you don't think you can't get me going for hours on politics, try me out. I'll show you doesn't mean I'm always right, but it means I'll talk to you all day about it. I can get off mission easily. Because these are big issues. They're important issues. We're not saying they're not important issues. But what did Jesus say in another setting? He said, let the dead bury the dead. That's a hard word, but you've got to let the dead bury the dead. Politics is dead end. I'm telling you. The one guy you get elected is going to get replaced by the next guy, and he's going to tear everything down. If you were in favor of Donald Trump, he did a lot of good things. What happened when the next guy came in? Poof, one slice of the pen and they were all gone, weren't they? It's a really bad place to put your eggs. But it feels so important. Man, you're on the Titanic. You know, it's going down, but gosh, look at this beautiful boat. I can't let it go down without polishing some of the brass. You know, let it go down in style. No. You have a personal mission from Jesus Christ to be a disciple. Stay on mission. Collectively, we have a personal or a collective mission from Jesus Christ. We must stay on mission. There are many temptations to do otherwise. Many churches fell into the the social justice movement and shipwrecked. How many ministries shipwrecked over that stuff? And then on the other side, falling off the horse on the other side, are those who shipwrecked on having ministries to oppose the social justice movement. To fix America from a different angle. Stay on mission. And the way you get off mission is because you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's, Jesus said. How and why can a man like Peter, who was just told he's the rock, Jesus is going to build the church on him, right? And the next thing you know, he's called Satan. What's going on? How How can one inadvertently try to tell Jesus, give Jesus some bad advice and direction 
But Peter was convinced it was the right advice and direction, wasn't he? We cannot remain worldly-minded. We must be kingdom-minded. We cannot remain traditional in our thinking. We must be biblical. We cannot bring in psychology or philosophy or any other thing into the church of Jesus Christ as a dominant dynamic. We couldn't even believe it. I remember when Chris and I and others of the guys were sitting there reading that the Southern Baptist Convention is actually saying that the principles of social justice, of CRT, were good tools for the gospel. Get behind me, Satan. You fail in this area. You miss your mission when you become human-centered instead of God-centered. Many things in the world are significant and urgent, but they can never, ever become substitutes for the kingdom of God. The world is passing away. The Titanic is sinking. And our mission is not to keep it afloat. Well, that's where we'll have to stay here. It wasn't my main purpose. This was the bringing forth of the significance where Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, right on the heels of this, that's sort of the antidote to this. If you're going to come after me, then you're going to have to do some things. You can't be like Peter. You have to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross and you've got to follow me. And we'll start there. Lord willing, next week. Heavenly Father, we come again to your throne. Lord, we praise your great name and we just thank you that your kingdom is so big and so majestic. Your kingdom is so intense, so fills heaven and earth and so fills eternity that we don't lose by giving up the things of this world. Lord, you've given us a mission of a kingdom of God, a kingdom that can't be shaken. The whole rest of the world's going to be shaken. Lord, Gwen and I have just been watching some stories about World War I and World War II where you shook the world. You shook the nations. And everybody's hopes were dashed. Everybody's stuff and things and all their plans were gone. But your kingdom remains and will remain forever. Lord, let us not be like Peter and still live in a muddle of traditional thinking. Lord, renew our minds and our hearts, not just our minds, our hearts, by your holy word. So that, Lord, we can mind the things that are of God and not the things of a failing human race. Lord, be faithful to us. Keep us in love. Keep us in truth. 
Lord, we so long for you to bless our efforts to bring your gospel to the world around us. We pray you would do that. Lord Jesus, above all things, show us yourself. Show us the Father. Show us who you are, who we are. And grant us that grace and that privilege to live that out in the real things of life. Lord, bless all your people around the whole world. Bless us here. Bless this body. This is where we, the rubber meets the road for us. It doesn't meet the road for us in China or any other place. It meets the road for us right here in this space. And this is what we're responsible for. And so we pray you would bless our efforts in this town in which we live and in this body in which we fellowship. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.